Okay, so we are on still on God's wrath in the Bible, but we're now in the New Testament. And we're going to back up, well, not too much. We're going to back up and start with Romans 1, where we left off last week. Okay, so Romans 1, and we're going to start with, we read this last week, so I think maybe instead of reading it again, uh, since time's of the essence, we're going to just look at it. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Romans 1, and he... And just to reiterate, uh, he first talks about God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. We're going to come to that again when we talk about atonement, uh, how that is. Uh, but verse 18, it says that God's wrath is being revealed from heaven and against all ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. When that, when we have that word revealed, as I mentioned last time, uh, it means to show, to disclose, to uncover. It's the same word, uh, as we have in the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. It's uh, actually the verb apocalypto. So what follows is definitive to God's wrath. It, de- it defines what God's wrath is. It's, because this is the re- revelation of God's wrath. Verse 26 says, or verse 24 says, God gave them up because, uh, because they dishonored him. God gave them up. In verse 26, God gave them up to decrudding lust. And verse 28, God gave them up to a defective mind to do inappropriate things. So, to me, this is a key passage. You may remember vaguely <laughs> that last year, when we talked about hermeneutics and how to read the Bible, uh, and maybe even back to earlier this year in, in autumn quarter, we really stressed the hermeneutic of finding key passages that unlock meaning for other passages. To me, Romans 1 is a key passage. Because of that word, apocalypto, uh, that is so definitive, it means that what follows is the definition of... God's wrath, or a description of God's wrath. Now, let's go to Romans 2. And you remember, Paul has this enormous list that we all find ourselves in of bad things that people do because God gives them up. Romans 2 takes on from there. And so I would like, um, why don't we go ahead and begin reading. Tara, would you like to go ahead and first... Verse 1, start Romans 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. 
To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. Okay. It sounds like God's going to get them after all, doesn't it? Uh, I would like to walk you through this. First of all, the context is what people do with God's mercy and his kindness. Um, if you judge other people, you are rejecting God's kindness for that person, aren't you? Because you're saying they're damned, they're bad, and implying thereby that God can't forgive them. Like that they they're so bad that they're beyond his kindness. So when we judge other people, we demonstrate that we have rejected the mercy of God. If we accepted if we accepted God's kindness in our lives and believe that he forgives us, it would cause us to be humbled because we would have to realize we need forgiveness in the first place in order to accept it. But if we were humbled, realized that we needed forgiveness and believed that God forgave us, we would be generous and forgive other people instead of judging them. Okay. That's what I think Paul is trying to say here. So he, in verse 4, he says, Do you believe that you will escape God's judgment? So he's about to introduce God's judgment here. He says, or do you have contempt for the riches of God's generosity, tolerance, and patience? Don't you realize that God's kindness is supposed to lead you to a change of heart and life, which is uh, my version's interpretation of repentance. So, God's kindness is God's kindness, not his wrath, that leads us to repentance. Verse 5, you are instead, you are storing up wrath for yourselves. Whose wrath? Do you have uh, God's wrath in any of your versions? This is for the day of God's wrath, but it says you're storing up just plain. Right. You're storing up wrath for yourself because of your stubbornness in your heart that refuses to change. For God's just judgment will be revealed on the day of wrath. Let me explain the Greek here. The phrase you can stirring up wrath for yourself can be just as rightfully translated you are storing up wrath in yourself for the day of wrath. Whose wrath are you storing up in yourself? And it seems logical to me that if I reject God's mercy and his kindness. I'm left with the opposite of anger. I mean, it talks about patience. What is the opposite of wrath, do you think, in the Old Testament? We've, we've covered it, but you may not think of it. Literally slow to anger in the Hebrew, remember? So the opposite of anger is slow to anger, uh, or patience. So, 
it seems to me if we reject God's patient forbearance and his kindness, we are going to become angry people because we're impatient for him to do something to other people. And we store up wrath. If we judge other people, we're storing up anger in ourselves, our own anger. We're just gunny sacking it in ourselves. And that's why verse 6, God will repay everyone based on their works. It sounds like God says, oh, you did this bad thing, you deserve this punishment, and I'm going to whack you this much. Which that belief actually is part of what led uh, to the belief, I believe, in an ever-burning hell and an immortal soul. That you have to be punished for every deed you do. I can't resist using Ellen White. Uh, Ellen White makes the interesting comment that Satan demands that every sin must be punished. I don't know if you remember reading that in The Desire of Ages when we went over that. But Satan is the one who believes that every sin must be punished. That's his form of justice. So I would suggest that verse 6 means that we reap what we sow in ourselves. If we're, if every time we want someone done in because they're bad, we are storing up anger in ourselves and we will reap everything we do toward other people. It will come back on us, not by an arbitrary decree of God, but as a natural consequence. That this is really talking about, uh, what we do to ourselves and that we are, we, we suffer according to what we've done. Because what we do reacts on ourselves. It, and, and if we keep in mind, and we'll be covering this more clearly in the, uh, when we talk about atonement. If we keep in mind that, uh, the final death of the wicked is emotional agony, this all fits together very, very well. And you notice verse 8. You, well, let's look at verse 7 first. On the one hand, he will give eternal life to those who look for glory, honor, and immortality based on their patient good work. You see, the opposite is patience. Instead of storing up wrath, the ones who who are eligible for heaven are those who pay, are, who act out patience. Now, this is not Paul is not seeing this as earning our salvation by works. He's saying this is the law of sin and death and the law of eternal life. This is if we accept God's love in our hearts and let it transform us, God makes the changes that need to be made and we will exhibit the patience that he has. Um so this is not uh, earning eternal life. But um there will be trouble, verse, well, verse 8, but on the other hand, there will be wrath and anger for those who obey wickedness. Well, you think about it. At the end of the millennium, when God gives people up and he no longer restrains the evil that's in their hearts, they are ultimately going to turn on one another and, and exhibit all kinds of anger and, and wrath and rage. And, of course, acting out selfishness. So, does that make sense of this passage? It, it seems to me that, otherwise we have a contradiction between chapters 1 and chapter 2. God's wrath. Paul, Paul talks about wrath in two ways. God's wrath and just wrath, without God being attached to it. 
And God's wrath to him is giving people up to their own desires. The wrath that is to fall and the judgment is what the natural consequences of that giving them up and, and their own anger that they've stored in themselves brings out. Any questions or observations? There's a text that we didn't take in that I'd like to. John 3.16. This is backing up a little. I may have mentioned it briefly last last week, but um, and you know it my memory. But there's a piece in there that's very important. And in light of Romans, I think this is even more significant. Adam, would you read... Verses 16, 17. Uh, read actually verses 16, verses, okay, verses 16 to 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned. But those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is, and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it, it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. First of all, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever trusts in him won't perish. It doesn't say won't be slain, won't be executed, won't be put to death. They won't perish. And the Greek word there for perish is the middle, what we call the middle voice in Greek, which is reflexive. They won't destroy themselves, is really literally how it could be translated. So that's that's significant. And then you notice that this is the judgment. It's the light comes into the world, and it's what people do with the light that is the judgment. Which is to say that the judgment is not God's decision about us. It's our decision about God. And all God does in the, quote, judgment is to ratify the decision we have made, to bring it to light, to show what it really is. So putting that together with Romans, you, you see how, how embedded this is in descriptive law thinking rather than prescriptive law thinking. Uh, look at Romans, back to Romans, look at Romans 3, 5. Christina, would you read verses 5 and 6? I think that's all we'll read here. But if our injustice serves to confirm the justice of God, what should we say? That God is unjust to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? Yes, uh, this. let me talk about God's justice here. And my version has that too. Um, the word is dikaiosune, which does not, is not a legal term. 
And it does not mean strictly justice. There's another Greek term for justice called decay. And this is different. This is a religious term, a moral term. And it means righteousness. I did a thorough study of this for my master's thesis uh, on Dikaiosune Theu in Romans. Uh, so, the fact that uh, it's righteousness means if our unrighteousness recommends the righteousness of God, what shall we say that God is unrighteous to, and I have a blank in my translation of this, to blank the wrath, uh, we can, we speak in a human way, he says. Uh, the blank can be filled by the following, inflict, bring, pronounce, confer upon, impose on. And notice that the wrath is not the wrath of God. There's no God in there. Yet he brings wrath. How does he bring wrath? You see. And I think that's where we have to tie it in with Romans 1. He bring, and 2, he brings wrath by giving us up to our own internal combustion of anger, as it were. You notice he says, we speak in a human way. And my version has, I'm speaking rhetorically. So he's saying this a bit tongue-in-cheek. He's not intending that we take it uh, in the way that he said. He's saying it the way they would say it. But Paul really believes it differently. Uh, let's look at Romans 4.15. And, um, Glow, why don't you read... Um, just just read 15. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Okay, the law brings about wrath. How does the law do that? It shows your errors. Like, there wouldn't be errors if there was no law. It shows that there's something we have to strive for and live up to. And that brings anger? If you disobey. If you disobey... Is that God's anger? How does, how does this work? I would like to propose to you that if law, the law is descriptive instead of prescriptive, it, it's embedded in the law, that if you break it, you suffer the consequences, and that's wrath. Because God doesn't abridge those con- consequences. He doesn't abort them. He allows the law to play out. So, of course, if you break the law, if it's descriptive, the result is wrath, in a sense. Using wrath, then, as a metaphor for the consequences of God giving us up, letting sin play out its uh, way of doing. And this is a preamble to uh, Romans 6, which we'll come to shortly. Uh, I don't have Romans 6 down on this list, but I should have. Let's look at Romans 5, 9. Tara, would you read that, please? Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Yeah, God's is not in the, in the Greek. <laughs> it's added by, by a lot of translators. Do, do you all have God's wrath? Yeah. It's not in the Greek. Let me look in the in the King James and New King James. Does it have it? No, it doesn't say. See, the New King James tends to be a little more literal. 
Okay, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God's is not in the Greek. I've looked it up. (laughs) It's not there. So let's go to to Romans 6. and It helps us, I think, to read most of the chapter. Paul talks about the law of sin and death. And I don't think it's in this chapter. Let's talk, let's start with verse 12. Uh, Adam, would you read? Uh, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that um, you obey its evil desires. Uh, read down to uh, 14 and we'll have somebody else read. Uh, do not offer any part of yourself as sin, as an instrument of wickedness but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness for sin shall no longer be your master because you are under not I'm sorry you are not under the law but under grace Paul is suggesting that being under the law is produces sinning and he says this elsewhere in Galatians oh no Romans um 5:20 Law sneaked in to increase the trespass. Uh, let's, actually, let's go back to that. Romans 5.20 Moreover, the law entered that offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This this has to go beyond merely the because sin because the law shows us that we've sinned therefore sin abounds because we now know that it's sin. It could be rooted in Paul's assumption and and I think you remember reading this in chapter two that his assumption if you don't know it's sin it's not sin if you're doing it ignorantly and if you're doing your your best to keep the law of love um, you're on you're on a track toward the kingdom but. I think it goes beyond even that. Um, this word law entered is really sneaked in. It's a clandestine intruder. And law here is not the law. It is lowercase law. It is the use of law. It is the introduction of law. And see, Paul's thesis is that God's original plan was trust. That we trust him and because we trust him, he works righteousness in us. The fall is the result of distrust, I believe, for Paul. And that's where sin comes from. Whatever is not of faith is sin, according to Paul. So what happened is because Abraham's descendants did not trust God as Abraham had, they ended up with law. And so you have Sinai, Ten Commandments, all of that. And what that did, instead of, it was supposed to protect us, it was supposed to keep us from sinning, but it didn't do that. Instead, what it did is perpetuated a legal relationship with God instead of a trusting relationship with God. Trust is not a legal term. It doesn't belong to a legal model. At all. So, law sneaked in, not through God, but through history. 
and and the ones who invented law in its most primitive form are the Babylonians. And they they introduced a whole different paradigm than God intended because instead of a trust paradigm, everything became a legal paradigm where you 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 could only trust people if you had a contract with them. You couldn't trust them and have intimacy. You had to have something, an uh, artificial construct, like a contract, a covenant, a treaty, in order to ensure trust. Sorry, I don't know why I thought of this, but it sounds almost like a legal marriage. I, I feel like ideally you'd have this just trust relationship. You exactly. wouldn't need the documentation. Exactly. Yeah. They didn't have it in, in Isaac's day. You remember Isaac takes Rebecca into his mother's tent and there they are. <laughs> They're married. <laughs> and, and how many marriages are tied together more by legal bands than by trust and love? So let's go back to Romans 6. So what Paul describes here in verses 12 to 14, Adam read, is is whatever we devote ourselves to, it it has consequences. So yield yourself as members of righteousness rather than members of unrighteousness, because uh, sin should not have dominion with you over you. And and Paul says this in verse fourteen that if you're under grace, you have a relationship of trust instead of a legal relationship. And therefore, you're going to be able to keep the law. I want to say something at this juncture that I've increased. At first, I thought it was too radical to believe. But the more I think and study and pray, the more I'm convinced that it's, it's the radical truth. Adventists have talked about overcoming sin, usually in terms of power to overcome. We pray for power to overcome. We pray for strength, for endurance. And we, we think of overcoming in terms of gritting my teeth and refusing to drink that whatever it is or eat that whatever it is or do that whatever it is. I maintain that that is a legal way of overcoming. And it never works. It is bankrupt. That what we need is not power. Power only perpetuates the evil. And it usually has to work through fear. Fear can't, we can't rein ourselves up in enough terror of getting diabetes if I eat sugar, for example. <laughs> I can't rein myself up with enough fear to offset my desires for that sugar, you see. I don't have diabetes, by the way, but I'm just using that as an illustration. What I think we need is love and trust. That the root of the problem of all addictions, of all problems, is not will, lack of willpower per se. It's lack, it, there's a vacuum, a hole for love and acceptance and understanding and trust. That if it were filled, those addictions would take care of themselves. Sin is part of the paradigm of power. Sin itself is falling out of grace into Legalism. And I'd like to, to point out that in the beginning, Adam and Eve did not have to earn anything. They did not have to earn their value. That was a, a right by creation. 
They did not have to earn their keep, their their home, their food, their uh, heating. They had no heating bills, no electric bills, no gas bills. They had no garbage bills. <laughs> they had no clothing that they needed. Everything was free. They lived in grace. grace the word grace in, in uh, Greek means gift. Everything was a gift. It was all free. It was all grace. Sin was falling out of grace. And I think that Paul has that concept in mind. He doesn't say it, but it, it, it seems to be inferred by this passage. So let's move on. And uh, Christina, would you read verses 15 to 19? What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. What does slave mean in this context? Notice verse 16. Do you know that when whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, and we obey something or, or or other, we we're not in a vacuum where we don't obey anything or we don't have to obey or or there's no third option here. You either obey one side or the other, but you are slaves of one you obey, whether of sin leading to death or obedience leading to righteousness. So if you're a slave of sin, the outcome is death. And by the way, the word leading there is not in the Greek. It had to be supplied in order to make sense of the passage. Uh, it's really whether of sin to death <laughs> or obedience to righteousness. And notice Paul wants obedience from the heart. You can't have that unless you fully understand that God's ways make good sense and that therefore are good. They're not to make us miserable. And you trust him and you have an intimate love relationship. Your needs are supplied by the love of God so that you don't need anything else that's harmful. Okay, Glow, would you please read verses 20 to 23? For when ye were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What fruit hath ye then in those things where ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, the end of those things, sin, is death. That's the the end result. This is not something God imposes on people. This is simply the outworking of the law of sin. And then verse 23, the wages sin pays is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So sin pays a wage. We earn death. But we're given eternal life if we trust in God. That's a radical proposition. It, it, it means that the whole value system where of earning, of works, uh, that's tied to prescriptive law is, is the place that leads us to death. The wages of sin, it, it's what we earn. That whole preoccupation is part of the sin thing. But eternal life is a gift. And God gives that to us. Trust doesn't earn it, it simply receives it. Okay, let's uh, see if we can't finish Romans quickly here. Romans 9.12. And I'm going to take the, the role of reading now to okay. save time. I wonder if I was in Romans 8. Here it is. 22. I, I typo. It was a typo. 9.22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, his is not in the Greek. What if God, wanting to show wrath and to make his power known, endured with much suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's counterintuitive here. You want to show your power, you endure something? He endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Who prepared them? They prepared themselves. Doesn't say God prepared them. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared. He can, he's the one who prepares the vessels of mercy. The vessels of wrath are those who prepare themselves. I think that's fairly clear, so we won't spend a lot of time on that. Let's look at uh, the word at 12.19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. How does God repay? I think it's what follows. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is God, how God repays. God who sends love, uh, sunshine and rain on the just and on the unjust, right? That's how he repays. Okay, here's the, the problem text now. 13, 4 and 5. He tells us to submit to authority figures. Verse 4, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. What do you do with that? When God gives people up, he doesn't protect them from the avengers of, of their wrongdoings, does he? And, and it is true that society kind of loosely holds together because of the sword of justice. Without that, gentle good people would be overwhelmed by evildoers. So this is more restraint then it is the final wrath that is to come, which is 
giving people up completely. By the way, the word execute is not in the Greek, an avenger to wrath. (laughs) But certainly there does seem to be that. So does this negate everything we've said up to this point? That's the question. I don't think so. I think Paul sees this uh, in line with when God hands people over. Um, people will, the whole, the whole judicial system, the whole law and punishment system, the law and order system we have in our government often runs amok. We, we tend to punish the wrong people. We tend to punish innocent people. So it isn't ideal and isn't God's ideal plan, but He allows it to work in order to hold some semblance of order. Because without it, we'd all be down the tubes. The righteous would be overcome by the wicked, and it would be all over. So this is part of God's restraining. All right. We are now ready to start Second Corinthians 12.20 for next time. And we'll see... If we get through Revelation next time. And we should be back on home turf. Um, we had to meet here today because of Alumni Weekend. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the revelation of your wrath in the writings of Paul. We pray that we may use these keys to unlock the doors of other passages that are more difficult. I pray that your spirit will be with us through the rest of this week, and may we have a good week with you. In Jesus' name, amen.